For the first time ever, I am thrilled to say we have an official sponsor for the Dirk Talk podcast, and that's Ariat. I've worn Ariat boots on every job site I've visited over the years, traveling in them across five continents. More importantly, I have yet to find a single project where working folks, unlike me, are not wearing Ariat boots and workwear in every condition imaginable. And there's really good reason for that. And that's because it's phenomenal stuff. And the more I've learned about Ariat and the company, the more I've loved their brand. So with this, Ariat is offering any Dirt Talk listener 10% off their next Ariat order at ariat.com slash Dirt Talk. That's 10% off boots, jeans, and workwear at ariat.com slash Dirt Talk or at the link in this episode's description. With that, let's get to the show. Hey, y'all, this is Alex Horton. Welcome back to Dirt Talk. We're on a mission to make the dirt world a better place. This is episode 74. This week, we have David Garofalo, the chairman and CEO of Gold Royalty Corp. He was gracious enough to come on the pod and let Aaron pick his brain about all things mining. He's really knowledgeable and clearly has some extraordinary experience in the dirt world. But he also shares a lot of high-level finance stories as well. If you've ever had questions about gold mining, this is your guy. You're going to love this episode. So enjoy this conversation with David Garofalo. So with that, just to get started, I like to just start with how did you wind up in mining to begin with? How, how did that begin? Yeah, look, I, I'm a financial guy by background, uh, CPA trained with Deloitte's back in the 80s. Actually, didn't even have any mining clients when I was doing audit work. Um, I was head, headhunted by a uh, recruitment agency looking for a junior accountant uh, in a company called Imet Mining on the base metal side. And really know, knew nothing about the industry, thought I'd spend a couple of years there, learn a few things, and then move on to something else. And then two years turned to 10, turned to 20, turned to 30, um, and ended wow. up with four really strong organizations. And the thing I'm most proud of is over the 30 years um, with you know InMet, then Igneco Eagle, and then uh, HUD Bay Minerals, and then uh, Gold Corp, we developed 15 mines over those 30 years in those four organizations. Um, and that's a pretty remarkable achievement. And I, I never added up the capital expenditures there, but I would expect it would be well north of uh, $15 billion invested in those 15 mines because some of them were really quite large scale. Some of them were smaller, but I'd say on, on average, they're probably about a billion dollar ticket each. Yeah, my uh, funny you say that. My dad was, he retired from Deloitte. So that okay. was, that's the world I'm from. Everybody I talk to, it's like, oh, my dad was in construction or mining or this and that. It's like, ah, my dad worked for Deloitte. Um, that's funny he started out there with, Damn. so you were just talking about developing a mine. Yeah. And developing a mine is a, a process and not a very fast process. You don't just wander out into the desert and say, I think there's some gold here and, and break out your <laughs> shovels and have at it. There's, it's, it's a lot of, uh, meeting with governments and regulatory agencies and then investing in the infrastructure necessary. Can you just explain what does it take to even get a mine started? I'd even go further back than that and further up the value chain. And it's, um, you know, we rely on the industry on the success of the junior explorers. 
Um, if, if they weren't around, they're such an integral part of the ecosystem. And if they weren't successful, um, then we wouldn't have anything to put in our pipelines to develop. Um, and unfortunately for the juniors, the capital availability um, you know, from traditional sources ebbs and flows. Um, more recently, we've seen the juniors able to raise a bit of money, at least selectively. There hasn't been kind of a wholesale allocation of capital into the junior space, but now they're starting to raise money selectively. But until about a year, a year and a half ago, uh, they couldn't save any money to save their, to, to raise any money to save their lives. It was a very, very difficult ordeal for them to raise capital and have consistent expiration budgets. And as a result, in the gold industry, for example, reserves are down 40% over the last seven years. And that's simply through depletion. Mm. We we haven't, as an industry, reinvested back in, into expiration. And we certainly haven't supported the juniors as we should. Um, now that's starting to change. The juniors are raising money and they're starting to drill, but we're not going to see the, the evidence of their success for a number of years in terms of um, you know, rebounding reserves and production. It's going to take quite a bit of time because typically you know, the hit ratio for juniors is maybe one out of 20. So 19 out of 20 fail. And, and it, what's a what's a junior real quick? It's what, an explorer. What is it's, it's an explorer without any revenues. In other words, they're there just to do exploration, and they'll raise capital. And their hope is they find something and attract the attention of an established producers and get take that, taken out at a big premium. So, oh, okay. so their mindset is quite a bit more uh, entrepreneurial. They embrace risk. You know, they're they're swinging for the fences every time they put a drill hole down, right? Because mm. once they spend that money, they know they have to go back into the markets to raise capital again because they have no no source of revenue, and so we need them as an industry to be successful. Um, and 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 the reality is the producers don't do grassroots exploration well at all, because if you think about it, the way a producer thinks is, well, I've got to build, I've got to um, I've got to operate. Um, I've got to be safe. I've got to be environmentally responsible. I've got to hit our production targets. I've got to keep our costs down. It's all about mitigating risk. Juniors embrace it. They run into the risk. They run into the fire mm. and the seniors and the established producers, they run away from the fire. They're, they're trying to avoid fires. So, so that's why you'll never see a senior uh, really have the kind of exploration success, at least at a grassroots level, that a junior will. And so the juniors need that kind of support, consistent support to be successful. And having recognized that in the companies I've been involved with, you know, Immet, to Ignico, to HUD Bay, to Goldcorp, we, in all of those organizations, recognizing that we weren't good at grassroots exploration and that the juniors couldn't raise money consistently, we ran small incubator funds within those organizations to, to support juniors that we believed had the track record and um, the exploration um, expertise to find things. Mm. And generally, we tried to support juniors that were exploring in our areas of interest where we already had established operations. Um, and so we wanted them to do that grassroots exploration, but we wanted to effectively outsource that because we recognized we weren't a risk-embracing type of organization. We needed juniors uh, to, to do the kind of reconnaissance work, early stage exploration, grassroots, if you will, uh, that we really didn't have the skill set nor the risk tolerance to do. So they they go out somewhere drill, hope they find an ore body. Yep. And then they come to somebody, you know, or, or where you used to be, hey, we found a really nice looking ore body that you th we think you guys might want to develop. Yep. And then they sell sell that to you and that's how they make their money. It's exactly right. And and so they're huh. they're they're hoping for a lottery ticket, you know, and the, the odds are huh. heavily stacked against them. So when they own a property, they have a lottery ticket. You know, it might be 10 million to one odds, but at least they have the lottery ticket, right? And they'll drill it if they can raise some capital. Um, a lot of them, you know, they'll, they'll, 
you know, if they believe in it, they're true believers and are religious about what they're doing geologically, don't mortgage their houses. I've seen that time and again in the dyed-in-the-wool true explorers. They will bet everything. It's, it's like Vegas. They'll put everything, all the chips in the center of the table and say, you know, I really believe, that, you know, the next big discovery is here. And, wow. uh, you know, when they can't raise money from traditional means. Um, and God bless them. We need them. <laughs> I, 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 I have such admiration and respect for the explorers. And I've never been in a junior explorer, but I've always found ways to support them financially and technically as well if they need it. Um, and, and, you know, by and large, they recognize that they're not going to be mine developers and operators. Once they get to the point where they've discovered critical mass geologically, you know, a, an economic deposit, they'll look to auction their property up to the best, the highest bidder. Um, and that's mm. how they really make their score. Um, but again, the, the probability of ha happening is extremely low, um, and, but it happens enough that people think, oh, I'm, I'm going to buy that lottery ticket. I'm going to give it a shot. And so it really starts with that, because if you don't have a strong geological model, you can't build a mine, right? Mm -hmm. But we need the juniors to find that, that, uh, that deposit, and then um, we may supplement their drilling after we acquire it. We, they might find something of significant size, but we might say, hey, you know what? Let's buy it now. It's big enough, but we can make it bigger through the allocation of consistent exploration capital. And we may buy them even before they're at a point where they're ready to build because we believe that, you know, with a bit more drilling, there might be something of real significance there. So, you know, at various points along that spectrum of exploration, the producers will insert themselves. And, uh, and what they'll do is, is then take their balance sheet and their mind-building expertise and put it to work on that deposit the juniors have successfully discovered. Okay, so you, I come to you with a pretty significant deposit. You're like, yeah, this looks great. Let's, <clears throat> let's, uh, yeah, I'm going to auction it off to you. Yeah. So now you have the land, the deposit. Now what? Yeah, and, and you hit on it. I think you alluded to it. Uh, social engagement is extremely important. What yeah. you'll hope when you acquire um, a deposit from a junior is that they've already engaged with the local communities. and Because you only get one chance to make a first impression in life. And it's the same with the exploration game. When you're stepping on somebody's ground for the first time and there's local communities, indigenous and otherwise, you want to make sure that you make a positive first impression, that you're not just galloping into their land, drilling without telling them and consulting them. You want to let them know what you're up to. And you're hoping that the junior, uh, junior, and you do you check this through your due diligence exercise, that they're, they've done a, a reasonable job of engaging with the local community. When we come in to build a mine, whether it's a base metal or precious metal mine, what we'll do is uh, uh, quite a bit of social mapping. And what that means is we'll look at all the communities that uh, could be affected directly and indirectly by the mine site. So if you're building, say, a big mm -hmm. copper deposit, and I built one in, in Peru called Constancia, you know, an 80,000 ton a day operation uh, of ore moved, and, and we were uh, producing hundreds of thousands of tons of, of um, copper and zinc concentrate, which we had to transport to the port um, on, the, uh, the, uh, on the Pacific coast of Peru, you know, um, mm -hmm. about 400 kilometers away. So it wasn't just about what's happening around the mine site. But what about that highway from our mine site all the way to the port? Uh, how many other communities are going to see our trucks going by? And, uh, you know, are we're going to be increasing truck traffic exponentially along that route. Um, mm -hmm. So you have to not only socially map around your mine site, but along the route to get your product to market. 
and who's going to be impacted and make sure you consult with them along that route. So, you know, at any point, somebody could park their road on the high, park their car on the highway and block you off and then you're done. Hmm. It's, it's so easy to disrupt a massive operation. That was a $2 billion project we built in Peru. All it would take was a, a couple of guys with pickup trucks blocking the highway if they didn't like what we were doing. And our $2 billion investment would have gone up in smoke. So it's extremely important to do that social mapping. And then, hmm. then you know, in tandem with that, you're going through the regulatory process, you know, normal environmental impact statements, uh, uh, permitting with the government, uh, environmental bonding, that sort of thing, starting to design your closure plan before you even actually put a shovel in the ground, because uh, that'll give you the, the license and permit to actually build the mine out, because the governments want to see that you actually have a plan to close the mine at the end of the reserve life before they actually mm-hmm. give you a license to build and operate the mine. Um, so you have to do all of that type of work, and then you have to engineer uh, your, your, uh, your, your feasibility study. And what that means effectively is you want to get to Overall engineering, no less than 30 to 40% to get a reasonable estimate of what the capital expenditures are uh, for the construction of your your project. Because that'll obviously drive your rate of return analysis. Are you able to make um, a a, um, case, an investment case for what you're building? And what goes into that Mm. is not only the social mapping and the timelines for permitting, because time value of money is very important in driving rate of return. So you want to make sure you have a fairly good sense of uh, how long it'll take to get that social engagement done, get your permits from the government done. That, that'll drive timelines and a drive rate of return. And then you'll, you'll try to estimate your capital within a plus, the fi- plus or minus 15% range. Um, and that's what, that's what 30 to 40% overall engineering gets you, is gets you to that feasibility level estimate which gives you a margin of error of plus or minus 15%. That's as good as you're going to get before you put a shovel in the ground. And once you have that, then you make your case uh, to your board. And if you need to get capital in the market, making that case to the cap- to the capital markets as well mm. and to the debt markets you know, uh, and to the banking markets. And uh, you, you know, if you need to raise capital, uh, that, that's, those are the building blocks to get to the stage where you make an investment decision. And then we get into construction, which is an entirely another dimension of risk. Yeah, it's fascinating because you're spending like a billion dollars plus to develop something. That is, so you're going to spend that billion dollars up front before you expect anything in return. Yeah, <laughs> which is, I mean, I'm seeing that on the much smaller scale, building a business right now. It's, <laughs> hey, I need to invest now to get that return down the road. But it's amazing mining. I mean, you're sinking so much into a single project, and there are so many elements that could derail that thing. Mm -hmm. There's, I mean, even with a really promising deposit, there's a lot of risk. And even like politically, like I know Freeport, they ran into a lot of that just political turmoil in uh, Indonesia. It's like things can, things can shift even if the deposit is right and you have the money and you have everything else, you have the construction and, and you're operating a mine and things can change on you politically. Mm -hmm. It's pretty wild. Absolutely, um, tax regimes can change in the midst of your yeah. construction, and and um, you know because you go in assuming the tax rate is going to be X, and that drives your rate of return analysis. But what if the tax rate increases dramatically, and then what does that do to yeah. undermine your rate of return? And what happens if that's in the midst of construction, or, or for that matter, in operation? You know, you've already invested the capital, you're sunk, and you can't move your operation 
the deposit mm-hmm. is where it is. So that's that's the difficult thing about mining is you can't pull up stakes and build a factory somewhere else. Deposits are where they are, um, so you're stuck. Um, and and that's always um, a significant risk. It's it's even a risk in places like the United States and Canada. I'd say I'd argue even more so in the United States and Canada. Um, there's a lot of nimbyism in, in in the first world in terms of mining, and so uh, you know governments can very well tax your mines out of existence. Uh, and I've seen it happen before. It's it's almost like a form of creeping expropriation. You know, you, yeah. you increase the tax rate enough that you starve the mine of oxygen. Right? You, you basically undermine any value proposition of the mine for the operator. And I've seen that happen in, in many many jurisdictions and first world jurisdictions as well. So, so you're right. There's a lot of inherent risk in the mining business. So it's important if you're an operator to have some diversity in your portfolio, recognizing that you have geopolitical risk, mm. you have safety risk, environmental risk, you have social risk around your mine sites. Um, these sorts of things need to be diversified away to the extent they can. Were you involved in the South 32 project in Arizona? No, I was involved in another project in Arizona called Rosemont when I was running Hud Bay. And Rosemont, yeah, Rosemont yeah. Um, we acquired when I was still CEO of Hud Bay before I left it to uh, run Goldcorp. And Rosemont is a, a very large copper deposit uh, just south of Tucson, uh, right yeah. near the Mexican border. Uh, it's been engineered extremely well. Social engagement's been, been done extremely well with the local communities. Uh, very, very thoughtful water management in, in a desert environment. Uh, dry stack tailings, which actually... Uh, means that you're recycling virtually all of your fresh water consumption. You're you're not using uh, any significant fresh water, and it also is much less risk uh, associated with tailings disposition because you're creating basically an inert uh, waste management pile that can never spill. Mm-hmm. Um, so very very thoughtfully engineered, um, and 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 in scale would have produced you know close to two hundred thousand tons of copper per year. Um, at relatively low cost. It would have been about a $2 billion project in Arizona. So very meaningful investment um, in, in the local Pima County. Uh, and, uh, but we had significant NGO opposition, um, non-governmental organizations mm. opposing the copper mine. And I would argue that virtually none of those NGOs are in Arizona. They're from other yeah. parts of the world. Um, yeah. And so while we had broad-based community support for it, the NGOs fought it through court and uh, the environmental permit got yanked by a judge. Now, they're, they're appealing it, Hud Bay is, and I think they'll ultimately be successful. But the judge, uh, the judge's political leanings, unfortunately, were, were um, uh, I guess, more aligned with um, the NGOs that were suing against it. And, you know, judges are politicians in the U.S. Um, like anybody else, and they have political affiliations. And this was clearly somebody that wasn't um, a strong pro-business judge and, and uh, used a very um, obscure uh, section of the mining code uh, to deny the permit, uh, which I think had be ultimately be able to successfully appeal, but it delayed the project. And so really undermined that time value proposition that I was talking about. You know, you think you mm-hmm. do everything right, and then you get hit by a bolt of lightning like that um, in an appellate court. So, so it is. Yeah. It's a bummer. That, that happens a lot in the United States, and I've yep. seen it only increasingly happen. And, and and it's such a shame because it was like an operation like that is extraordinarily well thought out and responsible. Yep. And we're not, as a society, consuming any less copper or any less iron ore or gold or whatever it is, in rare earth especially, and lithium, and, and you know the market's starting to consume more and more of that. So we have to get it from somewhere. And we would do it really responsibly here but everybody here is like, no, 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 no. Let's just sweep it under the rug and put it somewhere where we can't see it. 
And the bummer is in a lot of places where we get it from, it's not well thought out. It's not conscious. And it's it's ruining wherever it's at, which is a it's a huge shame and it really bums me out. Yeah, and, and copper is a strategic metal and has been recognized by the Biden administration as a strategic metal in the decarbonization mm. of our global economy. Yeah, you know, think yep. about it. If you're looking to electrify vehicles, an electric vehicle uses three times the amount of copper than an internal combustion engine does. So typically uh-huh. 600 pounds of copper in an electric vehicle versus 200 pounds in yeah. an in, in internal combustion engine. So it's, it's extremely important uh, to the U.S. economy and to the economy globally to produce copper domestically. So you would think a project like Rosemont that's very, very thought, uh, well thought out environmentally um, has been through umpteen reviews by various uh, government agencies at every level and been approved mm-hmm. uh, by every level of government. Uh, would be the type of project that you want to develop. But I tell you, there is an ignorance around there about where copper comes from. And, and I'll tell you a story, and, and I'm not being facetious, but you know, I, no. in the process of engaging with local communities in Pima County, we would do surveys of, um, you know, uh, of the local communities about their support or lack thereof of the project. And you know, one of the questions we'd ask in the survey is, well, if we don't build Rosemont, where would you buy your copper? And I'm not joking. A few people say Home Depot. Hmm. Okay. Um, so where does Home Depot get their copper? <laughs> you know, yeah. it, it just, there's, there's a, a logic gap there, a, a lack of education about how important copper is to our economy to electrify, uh, to urbanize, and, uh, and to decarbonize our economy. Um, and we need to close that, that knowledge gap. Uh, between the consumer and the producer, because there clearly is one, and and the government certainly could be a little bit more helpful in that regard. Uh, I mean, I, I think I think there needs to be a priority placed on on incentivizing this type of copper development uh, domestically in the U.S., given how strategic it is uh, to to um, you know the uh, uh, climate initiatives that that Biden has laid out in, in his administ- in, in his administration since he was sworn in. No, I, but, but, you know, I just got off, uh, I actually just spent a few days with a group called Echelon Front. They wrote a book called Extreme Ownership, Jocko Willink, Leif Babin. And it's about how everything at the end of the day is your responsibility. And, and so the, the industry is facing this opposition and there's a lot of misconceptions around the mining industry. And yet me trying to get the word out about mining, it's very difficult for me to work with these big mining companies because they're like, no, 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 no photos, no videos, nothing. And it's like, well, hey guys, this is this is our responsibility. Like, we need to educate society on what happens at these mines and how responsible it it is and how thought out it is. But yet, there's all this pushback against what we're trying to do, which is try to get get you know. There's so there's so much negative press around the mining industry. So instead of telling their own story, they've just no, 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 we're, we're no, no cameras, no, no photos, no nothing. We're just not going to say anything. And now we're facing this problem where, well, now there's all these misconceptions and now others can control the narrative. And now it's out of control because we haven't taken it on as our responsibility. And it's, it's frustrating to me because it's like, I have the best of intentions. I love this industry. Mm -hmm. It does amazing things. Society couldn't live without Mm -hmm. us. And yet there's a lot of these big mining companies that make it very difficult to help them out. I, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, when I was writing Gold Corp, I was on um, 
the ICMM, which is the International Council of Metals and Minerals, and all the large cap companies belong to it. It's uh, we meet on a quarterly basis. It's all the CEOs from all the major uh, companies, gold, mining companies, gold and base metal in the world. Um, and, and honestly, what I found around that boardroom table is our communications always um, tended to gravitate towards the lowest common denominator on key issues like decarbonizing, um, uh, mm-hmm. more responsible water management. We never said anything of any significance or substance to the market um, because uh, mm-hmm. when you have a collection of that many eagles around the table, it's very difficult to come to a consensus on how the industry should um, should set the standard and, and communicate that standard more importantly. Um, so I, I do think as an industry, we tend to fail. We tend to, you know, it's, 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 you know, we tend to all speak our own languages and go in our own directions and, and where we should really coordinate our efforts and, and better communicate uh, to the individuals and consumers uh, of the importance of what we produce, how strategic it is to our economies. Yeah, we work, we work with a company called uh, North American Coal, so NACO, NACO Natural Resources. And in, we, we've spent a lot of time reviewing their reclamation, reclamation efforts yeah. and reclamation for, it's not metals, but it's, it's, it's mining. It, it, the people that do the reclamation, I've never seen people that are so passionate about the environment. Yep. And it, it's just, it, it's really exciting and, and optimistic. It, it, it's really exciting for me to see because it's like, man, these people really care. But they're 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 painted in such a negative light, and it's easy to paint them in negative light. Like, look at these people; they're just digging this big hole in the middle of nowhere and and mowing all these trees down, and they don't even care. But it's like, wait a minute, that's not at all true. These people really care, and every mine I go to, they really really care. Yeah, and, and remediation and closure costs are not left for the end of the mine. Quite often, you're doing pro- progressive no. remediation over the mine life. So you may finish yeah. mining in a certain part of an open pit and actually start to reclaim that um, well ahead of the end of the mine life. Um, so you don't wait till the end and spend all that money at the end. You want to progressively reduce your footprint over time as the mine matures so that it's not a big event when you do get to ultimate closure. It's it's part of a progressive process that's happened over many, many years. And in fact, um, when I was running Gold Corp, we were spending uh, on average annually $60 million US per year on progressive remediation costs across our portfolio of operating mines. $60 million a year. Um, so it's not insignificant. I'd say the same thing with Hud Bay. When I was running Hud Bay, we had three operating mines, two in Manitoba, and um, actually three in Manitoba and one in, in Peru. And in Manitoba, uh, the company had been operating for a century. And over that time, they had three operating mines when I was there, but they had 28 closed mines, you know, because this was a prolific geological district. And every few years, we found a new deposit to feed the infrastructure that They've been there for many, many decades, and we were progressively closing mines. And honestly, I would fly by helicopter over that massive 60,000 hectare property position that we had, and they would say, you know, there was a mine there. And you'd look and say, where? What? what? There was a mine there? You know, because it was revegetated. There was no evidence of it. So we, we took a lot of pride in managing the closure of 28 mines, as much pride as we did in operating the three mines that we had in Manitoba. We, we managed that closure obligation, that remediation um, as carefully and with as much pride uh, as we operated our existing mines. I, I, and I love to hear that. And how, so you've been in the mining world for quite a while. How have environmental standards changed? Like what, what where was the mining industry 
decades ago and where is it now and where is it where is it headed yeah so i i think that uh, we've become uh, much more sensitive to uh, decarbonization initiatives um and yeah. also uh, much more uh, uh, effective stewardship of water consumption as well because we're measuring it uh, we're measuring our carbon intensity we're measuring our water intensity which probably 30 years ago we didn't do with any sort of scientific rigor um now we do um, and, uh, and, and if you measure it, you're going to manage it. And so I would say on the decarbonization side, I never thought our business was terribly carbon intensive to begin with, uh, but it's become much less carbon intensive. And, and I'll give you one tangible example. When I was running Gold Corp, we built the first all electric underground mine in the world. Um, in Bo it's called wow. the Borden Lake Mine in Northern Ontario, uh, near our Porcupine Complex in Timmins, Ontario, about a hundred kilometers outside of Timmins. Uh, again, all electric fleet, uh, mobile equipment underground, um, and that not only reduced our carbon intensity, but also reduced our electricity consumption because uh, uh, if you're not using internal combustion engines underground, your ventilation uh, requirements are significantly lower. And, and so that meant less natural gas consumption, less electricity mm. consumption to blow that air around. Uh, the, so the fans were much smaller, much less ventilation. Uh, so really was a bit of a virtuous cycle. So we as an industry are, are rapidly scaling that type of technology to, to, to be utilized in bigger and bigger mines. And that, that was a relatively small underground mine. We only produced about 1,800 tons of ore and waste per day. But uh, it's only a matter of time before we scale that technology up and utilize it in large open pit mines, go entirely electric. And so I'm very, very optimistic about our initiatives as an industry to decarbonize our business. And, and we are becoming much less carbon intensive over time. On water, <coughs> um, I, I think our progress has been more tentative there. Uh, but I, I do think the technology exists to significantly reduce our water consumption. Um, when I joined Gold Corp, we started actually measuring for the first time our water recycling rates, uh, which uh, when I started there were somewhere in the 60s, uh, which is not great. Um, and mm -hmm. uh, we introduced an initiative called uh, Net Zero Water. We wanted to be a net zero water consumer uh, within 20 years. And within the first couple of years, we got our recycling rates up close to 80%. Uh, by focusing on initiatives. This was kind of a moonshot objective, right? We said, you know, getting to 100% recycling seems technologically impossible right now, but if we don't set that objective, we're never going to develop the technologies to get there. So let's just set the objective and see how we do. And we actually showed considerable progress really early on because, again, we were measuring it for the first time, our, our water recycling rates. And so people started to focus on how they could reduce fresh water consumption at the mine site as a result and start to recycle water and introduce technologies and, and other investments in order to improve those recycling rates. So we, we can certainly get there. I think the biggest consumer of water at a mine site is a tailings facility. Uh, mm -hmm. Traditional tailings impoundments are extremely water intensive, but the technology exists, as I mentioned, dry stack tailings early on, where we use large filter press presses to dehydrate the tailings and obviously uh, recycle the water that comes out of that dehydration process. And it has the added benefit of creating an inert bale of, of tailings that can just be stacked. That's why it's called dry stack tailings. And so you don't need a traditional tailings impoundment or a dam, and you don't have that risk wow. of a tailings dam breach. You know, time, you yeah. know, from time to time, it happens in the industry. It's kind of like in the yeah. airline industry. Um, airline crashes happen very infrequently, but when they do, they're always catastrophic. It's the same thing with tailings facilities. So we need to get out of the business 
of tailings impoundments for a couple of reasons. One, it's, it's stigmatized because of the occasional um, disaster we've seen on the tailing side, um, but also it's a huge consumer. It's a water hog. Um, and if we can reduce our water consumption at the tailings end uh, of our, our mine site, uh, then we'll become a much less water-intensive business. And that's important from a social perspective because, you know, if you think about it, in society generally, wars are fought over water. And, and if, you want to, uh, if you want to get a social license to operate, you have to be perceived as a, uh, as a responsible steward of water because quite often you're coming into communities that might ha- be agriculturally intensive and, mm-hmm. and they'll see the mine as a threat to their agricultural activity because we'll be looking for water. You know, we need water to run our facilities. And so if we can demonstrate that, hey, you know what, we're not actually taking away from the water table. Yeah, we're drying fresh water, but we're recycling 100% of it and treating it and putting it back in the environment. And we're not affecting your your commercial activities that pre-existed our mine site. You're more likely to get that social license and, for that matter, regulatory permit to build your mines out. And just in, in layman terms, the and I might be explaining this totally incorrectly, but you run material through a crusher. So you just, you crush it into dust. Mm-hmm. And then you, you run it through, you, you, you mix it with water, run it through your processing facility, and you get this waste material, which is the mm-hmm. tailings. So that's, all right, you've separated out your concentrate, your ore, and now you have this waste material. And it's, it's like a slurry mm-hmm. and, and mixed into water. And you flush it out. You build a dam in a valley. Yep. You flush it out into the valley. And, and the waste material builds and builds and builds and builds and builds behind that dam. You take some of that water, put it back into the, into the cycle, and, and so that is your tailings dam. And that, you know, as we've seen, can break. And so everything downstream from that gets pretty ruined. I mean, there's been some pretty bad one. There was one, was it Brazil? There were two in Brazil. Uh, both operated, two in both operated by Vale, which is the, the Brazilian state yes. entity. And so it obviously yep. speaks to some systemic issues within that government agency. Um, obviously you can't have two tailings disasters in two years and not realize there's something wrong here. That's a pattern. Um, and, yeah. and so, yeah, yeah. And, and people died, people died, uh, uh, water, waterways were polluted. Um, hopefully not irreversibly, but, but they were polluted and mm-hmm. they were unmitigated disasters. Absolutely. Um, so we want to avoid that. And, and I guess to summarize environmental component here, so you can reduce your carbon footprint, just extracting the minerals and metals. Yep. You can reduce water consumption. You can reclaim and remediate the land. So afterwards, you don't even know you touched yep. it. And then all of these metals are going to initiatives to reduce fossil fuel consumption yep. because to reduce fossil fuel consumption, you need metals yep. and you need minerals to make that exactly. happen. It's I hadn't I didn't thought about. You thought it's you say it now. It's like wow, that's so obvious. <laughs> but I hadn't thought about that part of it. Yeah. Is like okay, great. If we want more solar, wind, renewable, we need more metals. Yes. It's or, and we want electric cars. We need metal. Yeah. Like it. Absolutely. Huh. Okay. So that I wanted to touch on the environmental side of things. Now, <clears throat> why? So metals are really really important in society. Why? Why is that? Like what? What is can you just roughly explain, okay, great. I know metals goes into my pickup truck, for yep. example, and I know copper, you know, electricity and this and that, but what is, what is the commodities market? Like how, how, do, and how does that impact mining? Because that like to make, to make an ore body economic, the commodity price has to be yes. there and has to remain there. 
to develop it. And sometimes you'll find an ore body. It's not economic today, but 10 years from now, it could be like, okay, great. This makes financial sense. Can you just explain the commodities market and how it plays a part in you all know, this? For sure. It's very cyclical. Um, and so that means you get a lot of volatility up and down in the metal price. And, you know, until recently, copper was quite depressed for quite a few years. Uh, but now mm -hmm. copper is at all-time highs. And I think what's driving that is the amount of um, monetary stimulus being introduced in the general economy. But also, uh, the markets come to realize that supply is constrained and demand it required for decarbonizing the economy, the copper intensity involved in that is significant. And so demand mm -hmm. is is increasing dramatically year in, year out, as the you know, as uh, you know, the industrialized world focuses on reducing carbon intensity. Copper is absolutely integral to that. And so China, uh, the developing world, but I would say even the first world is consuming increasing quantities of copper to decarbonize their their vehicles and decarbonize industry generally. Copper is integral to that. And also you have the added dynamic of developing world like China, India, and Africa taking a largely rural population and urbanizing that to stimulate economic mm -hmm. activity. And so that dynamic is unlikely to reverse. Half of China is still rural. Um, so they've got, yeah. you know, and typically our, our economies here in the first world are 80% urban. So they've got a long way to go to, to catch up to us in terms of our urban intensity. There's a lot of copper required to urbanize the economy. You know, when you move all these people into an urban environment, they need an electric grid, which is copper intensive. They want appliances. Um, they want equipment. They want cars. Again, a lot of carbon intensity in that. Uh, zinc is used to galvanize steel. Um, so you're building all these this infrastructure in urban environments, buildings, uh, all has to be um, uh, galvanized steel. Um, so it's rust inhibited. Zinc is an important element of that as well in order to urbanize the economy. Urban environments are much less uh, much less carbon intensive than populations that are spread out. Right? If you have people living mm -hmm. close together, close to amenities and work, you lose you use a lot less carbon. So it's been demonstrated that uh, urbanizing our environment, or urbanizing our society, is good for the environment. But we need a lot of copper to do that. We need a lot of zinc and other and nickel, for that matter, in, in steel uh, fabrication and whatnot, iron ore, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Um, so mining is absolutely integral to building that kind of infrastructure and building in an environmentally sensitive way. So there is essentially, and there's a <coughs> commodities market reflecting this. Yep. As demand for a metal goes up, the price of that metal globally goes up, much like oil or something like it's, that. Exactly. And and you, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, as a mining company, recognizing the cyclicality, because sometimes the metal price goes down because demand is muted for whatever reason, we get into a recession yep. and there's just a lot less metal consumed. Um, you know, we, we went through that about 10 years ago. Uh, we were in the middle of the Chinese super cycle. Copper prices were strong. Gold prices were strong. And there was a lot of new mine construction at that time. It, it actually mm -hmm. resulted in a lot of new supply. It actually depressed both the gold and the base metal market for a number of years. And then we came out of that cycle. So what do you do as a producer? How do you make a commitment to a significant project when your know, metal prices are depressed? And when and it's very, very difficult to try to anticipate when metal prices will rebound. And so it's it's a very difficult uh, difficult question to answer as a producer. Do I allocate this capital? Do I do it when everybody else is doing it and risk uh, capital cost inflation? If everybody else is building, we're competing for scarce resources and that'll inflate costs. That's what happened 10 years ago. Uh, 
We saw massive cost mm-hmm. inflation in the industry as a result of everybody building at the same time, both on the precious and base side. Or do you try to be countercyclical? And and yeah, metal prices are depressed today, but um, you know I've got a twenty or thirty year mine life. I'm probably going to have three, four, five, six cycles over that mine life. So let's not try to time the market. If it's depressed right now, and I I can out access people more readily, I can access equipment more readily, and much more cost efficiently. Maybe I make that countercyclical investment today. It's a very brave company that makes that kind of investment decision. There are very few of them that will do that. Because. Ultimately, that's probably the smarter decision, but investors are like, no, or we're not going to give you money for that. Like, and it's, it's, I, I find all this stuff fascinating, so I'm really excited to talk about it. Now, 10 years ago, the economy, a global economy was not doing that well, but metals was doing yeah. great. And then, I don't know, what was it like five, six? I don't know when it was. It was probably like six or seven years ago. Everything just fell through the floor. And copper was historically low, <laughs> but then you have all, like while everything yeah. was high, you had all these big mining companies spending billions yeah. and billions and billions to develop these new mines. And then it falls through the floor, but you can't just stop a mining project. No. So a lot of these mines were, were operating at a huge loss, but it was, it'd be more expensive to just mothball the project until they've recently gone way up, yeah. but it's, like the economy, global economy was doing very well when metal prices fell through the floor. So it doesn't necessarily reflect how the global economy is doing. Exactly. Yeah, because the lead times to to new mine development are extremely long. Um, So you Uh, can mistime the cycle. And and by and large, I'd say for most of the projects that I've been involved in in my career, we we didn't open them up when the cycle was was at its best. I mean, we made we made the investment decisions when we had um, an investment case and we had access to capital. And quite typically, that access to capital is available when metal prices are very high. So you may end up yeah. finding that you finish construction and the metal cycles have gone the other way. The metal cycle has gone the other way, gone against you, and you're opening up your mind at the bottom of the cycle. To your point, um, that happens. Um, and so it really requires uh, companies that have the foresight to build at the bottom of the cycle countercyclically, but also have the balance sheet to do that, to make that countercyclical mm-hmm. investment. There are very few companies that do have that. You know? And so what I think you'll see happen again, um, you know, because we've gone through this um, cycle where nobody's been building anything for about five or six years. You know, there was a big, massive investment in new mine construction 10 years ago coming out of the credit crisis when money was easy and metal prices were high and we were in the middle of the Chinese super cycle, as I said. And then we went into a nuclear winter of mine development. And, and we've seen yeah. reserves come down dramatically because we haven't been replacing them. What I think will happen is history will repeat itself. I think you're going to see metal prices at these elevated levels for a while, and companies are going to have this pent-up requirement to replace their depleting production bases. And they're going to throw a lot of capital at new development projects as a result of that, which means we're going to see massive cost inflation in the industry again. I think that's inevitable. History repeats itself. We're not that much smarter than our forefathers, I'm afraid. Uh, I think I, yeah, you'd think they would have thought figured it out by no, now. <laughs> no, but I mean the, the good thing is I would say the balance sheets have never been stronger in the industry. You know, we we've come out yeah. of the last five or six years with effectively net zero debt in the mining business. I've never seen that in thirty years. So they've harvested mm-hmm. their business really, really well. They've generated free cash flow, deleveraged, paid dividends, bought back stock. 
like the balance sheets are super, super strong. So they're better able to withstand the cost of inflation that I think is inevitable, but the cost of inflation is coming. And, and the two factors driving that are one, because of the overcompensation that we're going to experience as a mining industry for the lack of, uh, to the lack of investment in the last several years. But also, I think we're in a hyperinflationary cycle in the general economy right now, given all the quantitative easing we've experienced over the last decade or so since the last credit crisis, you know, in 2009. Yeah. It's been unremitting. You know, the amount of money that's been printed, the low interest rates, it's been extremely stimulative. And we're seeing headline CPI numbers start to creep up, you know, 5% or whatever it was in the last U.S. CPI number that came out a week or two ago. That number severely understates where inflation really is because I, I bet some of your listeners have tried to buy a house in the last year and it wasn't 5% inflation. Yeah. And and so inflation is an interesting point when it comes to the commodity markets, because as a currency is devalued, typically that's where precious metals come yep. into play, right? Like a gold or a silver yeah. or a platinum. Like, can you explain the difference between base metals and precious metals? Yeah, so base base metals really trade on demand supply fundamentals. It's very, very easy to, to explain um, the economic underpinnings of the base metal market. Uh, you know, when uh, the general economy is strong and people are building things and buying things, uh, you know, metal is integral to that and metal demand goes up. And if supply is constrained, as we see right now, supply is constrained on the base metal side, but demand is very strong. We see record highs for copper prices, for example. Mm -hmm. So it's really yep. easy to explain. You can look at the demand supply. You know, there's about 22 million tons, metric tons of copper consumed a year globally, and supply is below that. You know, and there's a deficit. You know, maybe it's 21 million tons of supply. And so that's driving the price up. Very, very easy to understand. Gold is a different animal. Gold is not a commodity. It's a currency and has mm -hmm. been a currency for four millennia. And so really what drives currencies up and down relative to each other? It's interest rate differentials, relative interest rates. You know, so what, that, what I mean by that is sovereign debt yields X, gold as a currency um, yields zero. It's, it, you know, you can store it in a vault um, and you'll never get paid interest on it. It yields zero. But sovereign debt today you know, whether it's a U.S. Treasury bill, uh, Japanese uh, uh, sovereign debt, European cent central bank sovereign debt uh, yields effectively negative in real terms because of inflation. So, yeah. you know, what that means is gold doesn't have any opportunity costs. It's a currency you want to own because at zero percent, you know, it can't be printed. And we know all the central banks are competing to debase their currencies right now. They're all printing with reckless abandon. So if you're looking at a way to preserve your capital, not have inflation eat away at your savings, you're going to want to own gold right now, right? Because it yields zero. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, sovereign debt, U.S. Treasury bills yield probably minus 4% right now on a real basis. That's That, that means you're yeah. using capital every day you own a Treasury bill. So you might as well own gold. And that's really what's driven gold up to the levels we've seen recently. And that's, and, and so inflation it has not been a. It hasn't been in the news until recently because over the past year with COVID, the governments are like, let's just print a ridiculous amount of money. And when you do something like that, there's consequences. And so you injected all this new money that doesn't really exist into the world, and now the money you have is worth less than it was For before, sure. which is the basis of inflation. Now, gold, you're you're only producing so much yeah. a year. 
and, 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 and it's not going away. So it's, it's fixed. And so, and, and it can't be, it can't you be don't printed. have to worry it can't about be printed. that. I mean, that, that's, you yes. know, you, you talk yeah. about, uh, just to give you a sense of how limited the supply of gold is, there's, there's 200,000 metric tons of gold on the earth's surface has been mined since the beginning of man. And to wow. give you a sense of what that looks like, it would fit four Olympic sized swimming pools. That's it. That's really? It. Just think about that. It's volumetrically, huh. it's tiny. We produce as an industry about 4,000 metric tons a year. So we add about 5% to supply per annum. Wow. Think about where fiat money supply has gone over the last year or two. It's increased exponentially. It, there there yeah. is no limit to how much fiat currency can be introduced into the system. There's ex, an extreme limit to what, how much gold we can introduce in the system. And I would argue that Gold is extremely inelastic to price. So gold price has gone up, but we have been able to respond on the supply side. In fact, as the gold price has gone up because of lack of investment and exploration development over the last six years, mine supply has actually been going down. We achieved peak mine supply last year. Um, So it's coming down as the gold price has gone up. So that dynamic, if anything, has been amplified uh, upwards for gold. You know, I think that's extremely important for sentiment that our supply is going down even as the gold price goes up. So it's even more finite and limited in quantity than people realize. It's it, Gold is so interesting too, because to sure there's some industrial applications to it. It's it's a useful conductor, mm-hmm. and but it, it really is is worth something because we all just agree it's worth something. Yeah, just, and it's, it's just, just rare. Just like, like, just like yeah. fiat currency. I mean, you know. Currency is yeah, the same it, thing. It's, it's not based it's on based anything. It's based on my, my accepting your you know, $1 US for my stick of gum. You know, I, I think you have value in that $1 US and, um, and you'll accept, it's just an accepted currency, an accepted fiction, if you will. I would say it's the same for gold, but the thing with gold is nobody can print it. Nobody can create it out of anything. Anybody can create a fiat currency. And, and you know, people have been asking me about cryptocurrencies recently. You know, uh, mm-hmm. why, why is cryptocurrency doing so well? Well, I'd say, well, there's a new class of investor out there that understands um, instinctively that their fiat currencies are being debased. And they're saying, well, okay, how do I protect my capital? Wow, okay, well, Bitcoin, it's, there's only 21 million of them. So there's scarcity there. I'll buy Bitcoin and they're not making any more. And, and I'd say, yeah, that's true. But there's, there's nothing to prevent somebody else from creating another cryptocurrency to, to capture market share from Bitcoin. In fact, that's happening. There's been a proliferation yeah. of cryptocurrencies right. trying to capture that market share. So that completely undermines the scarcity proposition that Bitcoin has been putting out there. And I would say, yes, cryptocurrencies have had our lunch in the gold space over the last year or so. But I think when this new class of investors that are looking for preservation of capital realize that that cryptocurrency is a fiat currency like anything else, and actually central banks are now talking about digitizing their currencies because they're not going to let Bitcoin eat their lunch, then it just becomes mm-hmm. a fiat currency like the paper currency. It just becomes a digital version of paper currency. Why would you want to be in that space, quite frankly? And I understand cryptocurrency is here to stay. Yeah. We need it just like fiat currency is here to stay. I'm not saying that it's going to disappear, but I think the value proposition needs to be seriously questioned. Well, and, and gold, like you said, has been around for 4,000 years. Yeah. It has a history of, hey, it's been valuable in society and it probably will remain valuable in society. That's right. 
It, it, Unless an asteroid might, hits, then yeah, your gold's Even worth the nothing. U.S. dollar, which is obviously the commonly accepted reserve currency globally, how long has it been around? Yeah, it's it's Johnny come lately. It's two hundred years. You know, gold's been here for yeah. four thousand years. You know, it's it's endured through multiple civilizations, the, the the rise and collapse of civilization, including the Roman Empire. Gold has been the currency uh, of choice um, for four thousand years. It's so fascinating, and I. Honestly, I didn't realize this until recently. And I was actually probably a month or two ago, I'm like, I should probably invest in some gold <laughs> because like, I understand, especially now, like, I'm 26. I don't know what the hell I'm doing with money. But uh, now that, that inflation's going up more and more and more, I'm like, I should probably buy a little bit of that. And I know it's expensive, but, but maybe, maybe I get myself yeah, but, a little Yeah, and it's bit. so much easier to invest in now than it was when I was your age, frankly. You know, when, when I was 26, I'd have to line up the bank with my driver's license and uh, and show ID and I'd get my wafer of gold or whatever I wanted to buy. Then I have to find somewhere to store it and incur storage costs. Yeah. But now you can buy an ETF, uh, which is a trade on the New York Stock Exchange or the symbol GLD, and you can physically have physically backed liquid shares. You know, So you have gold and somebody's storing it for you in a bank and it's audited every quarter. You know, so you know you have physically backed uh, paper there. Um, the other way to play it, of course, is buying gold equities. So you can buy mining companies, and that provides you leverage to the gold price through expiration, through profitability as the gold price goes up. Uh, but of course, you're, you're assuming some of the operating risk and political risk of operating those mines. And then the other way you can play it is buy a royalty vehicle. You know, uh, buy a company that takes royalties back on mines, but doesn't have any of the underlying operating capital mm. cost exposure. You know, and they just have top line exposure. I want one of those old school Spanish bricks I can bury in my backyard. <laughs> as long as you can find it later on. That's that's the risk. Yeah, you know, yeah, that's the risk yeah. of actually owning the physical. <laughs> but there are plenty of people that do that. You know, if you're an Arab sheik and you can afford to build a vault in your in your basement, then you know, you'll you'll have no problem buying bricks and storing it there. But if you're like the rest of us, it's it's a difficult proposition. It can be quite expensive. We were uh, actually discussing this the other night at dinner. Like, just imagine how much gold is at the bottom of the ocean that is never going to be found again. It's just sitting down there waiting for some. We were, we were talking about treasure yes. hunting because you can find a ship and, and some people have, they find this ship with buried treasure and then it's like, okay, whose treasure now is that? Because they claim it's theirs. And then now the Spanish government's like, nah, that was our ship 200 years ago. That's actually our gold. And then I... It's a, it's a rabbit hole, but that was a discussion <laughs> during the other night. Um, acquisitions. I wanted to talk about sure. acquisitions because you have been around the block when it comes to acquisitions and have been involved in a very large one. What is the benefit of an acquisition to begin with for a mining company? What, why, why, why go merge with another company? Well, if you're not finding it, you have to buy it. Um, so, you know, the lack of expiration mm. uh, over the last half a decade or so means that, um, you know, they're, they're not replacing their depleting reserves. And that's what drove um, the mergers at the top end of the food chain in the gold space a couple of years ago. You know, Barrick and Rangold merged. Uh, the new mine yeah. reacted and called me when I was running Gold Corp and said, hey, do you want to merge? And the reality was all four companies were facing a cliff in their production profiles in the absence of a merger. And they said, well, if Barrick's, if, you know, wow. it's like musical chairs. The music started, Barrick rounded up with, with Rangold and Newman said, okay, who's my dance partner now? I, I need to do something. And, you know, they, they offered us a premium deal and, and that helped us deal with our production declines and, and their production declines because what it did is create critical mass. It diversified 
the, the, the four companies' portfolios by putting them together, created critical mass, and allowed them to achieve a production level that they could sustain for a longer period of time because they had more assets to choose from. And they actually started to wean themselves of the assets that were non-core and small and didn't have the economies of scale. So it created scale and created liquidity in the capital markets, which is extremely important because uh, as a generalist investor, when you're coming into the gold space for the first time, you're looking for liquidity. You know, if you're buying Apple and, and Citibank and, and other major large cap uh, public companies, you also want that kind of liquidity when you're entering into a, a niche type industry like gold. And so you'll focus on the larger cap names as a generalist investor. So in order to maintain relevance and attract that incremental generalist capital, you want to have scale. And you want to give that generous investor the liquidity because ultimately what that does is drives down your cost of capital. You know, it, it helps improve your share price, drives down your cost of capital, and allows you to perpetuate your business more readily as a result. So, but that doesn't necessarily solve the problem of a lack in just global supply in general. Yeah, so, so what that means, combining yeah, forces. when you go down the, so yeah. I, I would say Barrick and Newmont, now that they've acquired Rangold and, and Goldcorp respectively, have solved their production problem. They have enough assets between the two of them. In Newmont's case, they could probably sustain 6 million ounces for 20 years. In Barrick's case, they wow. could sustain 5 million ounces a year for 20 years. They have enough critical mass in their portfolio now as a result of those mergers. But if you go down a tier into the mid-tier, they've got a big problem. And so that, that um, consolidation game will have to catch fire in that mid-tier because they, they're, that's where the production declines are coming and are more acute and are coming in, in a wave. They need to do something on the consolidation side. And I would say that there were a lot of deals that were ready to go pre the pandemic, uh, but they've been slowed down because of the lack of access to do physical due diligence on each other's assets. So there's going to be a lot of pent up huh. M&A activity in the gold space coming out of the pandemic. You're going to see a lot of activity come this fall, in my view, uh, to create that kind of critical mass within the mid-tier. Because the mid, sorry. Didn't, no, no, you continue. Mid-tier. Yeah, the mid-tier um, is dealing with a decline in production, but also like the seniors, they want to be big enough to attract that generalist investor when it starts to be uh, meaningfully, or when it starts to, excuse me, meaningfully enter into the gold equity market. It's, this is, I'm, I'm learning a lot today. Well, didn't didn't Newmont and Barrick join forces? They, they did on uh, on a uh, a discrete area uh, geologically and geographically in Nevada. So they had a lot of properties yeah. next to each other in Nevada, and uh, they, and they ended up combining because they had a lot of duplicate infrastructure. You know, they had deposits right uh, okay. beside each other. Then they had plants built right beside each other. It was ridiculous. So there was, you know, four or $500 million a year of synergies they could realize by combining their operations into a joint venture. And I think Barrick ended up with 60% of it, Newmont with 40% of it. But the synergies that were realized benefited both uh, as a result of, of combining forces and shuttering duplicate infrastructure. Okay, but they're still separate. Still separate companies, but they're joint, uh, joint in Nevada. How long does uh, I mean, like, what? How how big was the acquisition? You it was a thirty-two billion dollar merger. It was the biggest uh, gold merger ever, and <laughs> okay. and as a result, so now Newmont is triple the size. I mean, yeah, because um, not only <clears throat> did did you know we, we combined, but what happened is um, we we combined leading into a gold rally, and also because of their increased scale, there was a re-rate they realized. You know, because they attracted generalist yeah. capital, they became a bigger part of indices. And so the passive capital had to own them 
uh, and as a result, you know that thirty-two billion turned into almost a ninety billion dollar company uh, as a result of the re-rate at the peak valuation for Newmont. Wow. Now, how does something like that just? And I'm sure there's a lot of details. How long does it take? <laughs> and it's like, so some guy just calls you up and like, hey. So, David, what do you think about this? <laughs> well, it's, it, it, yeah, it's and, interesting. Uh, like, you know, we all know each other, okay? It's a very, very small industry. Um, and Gary Goldberg, uh, who was running Newmont at the time, and I um, it struck up a friendship, and we were collaborating, looking at opportunities together, you know, because we recognized we each had, you know, pipelines we needed to fill. And we said, well, what if we joint ventured on opportunities? And we started looking at things together. So we got, to, we got institutionally very familiar with each other. Then, then yeah. in um, the summer of 2018, Barrick surprised the market and took over Rangold and made themselves into the biggest gold company in the world as a result of that merger. And Newmont mm-hmm. honestly freaked out and said, shit, you know, Barrick's going to come for us next. Um, oh. and, and, you know, I remember having that conversation with Gary. And I remember sitting in a, in a room with Gary at the Denver Gold Show when the Barrick Rangold merger was announced in September of 2018, saying, Gary, let's join up and disrupt this merger. Let's take Barrick over. And Gary, Gary was having none of it. He said, no, 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 I, I, that's too risky. It's hostile. The market might not accept it. They could destroy our stock. You know, the, you'd have the, um, uh, the hedge funds coming in and shorting our stock. As a result of that, it's, it's just too risky a proposition. But what about merging the two of us together? And, you know, we said, okay, I said, well, you know, that, that might have some merit. Let's, let's, uh, let's do some serious due diligence on each other. So that was September of 2018. We announced our deal in January, January of 2019 and, and closed it in April of 2019. And all, all of that is top secret while yes, it's happening, yeah. right? Because <laughs> you guys are, you guys are public yeah. and so you can't, because that, that's manipulating yeah. markets. And so everything is right. totally yeah, buttoned absolutely. up. Yeah. 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 Wow. How'd you feel? How'd you feel when it was finally publicly announced? Was it just relieving happiness? Uh, no, that actually amped up the pressure quite a bit because there was always a risk that Bear could come in and try to disrupt our deal because they had just closed their Ran- the Rangold acquisition, and they, in fact, that's what they tried to do. So you know, they closed uh, the Rangold acquisition. I think in January we announced our deal January, and we still had a good couple of months to get to closing because you have to publish circulars and solicit votes from your shareholders and whatnot. And come the end of February at the BMO Mining Conference, Barrick announced that they were going to try to do a hostile deal in Newmont to disrupt our deal. And so, wow. and you can imagine Denver, they were freaking out Newmont, uh, the head office, because this was an existential issue now. It was exactly what they were afraid of, is Barrick was going to come after them. And so I remember saying to Gary, well, there's a simple solution here. The, the reason they're telling the market they need to take you over is because all of these synergies in Nevada, you know, because you have businesses right beside each other. Why don't you just call them up and offer to join Venture Nevada and, uh, and undermine their whole value proposition of taking you over? And that's exactly what, wow. what they did. So Gary calls up Mark Bristow and, says, uh, and, and does it publicly, calls him out publicly and says, look, if you want to realize the synergies in Nevada, you don't need to take over all of our business. Let's just join Venture Nevada. And that undermined Barrick's, uh, Barrick's case for taking Newmont out. And, and Mark was forced to come to the table and negotiate a joint venture on, on Nevada. So after decades of trying to merge their operations in Nevada with a gun to their head, um, with their respective shareholders saying to them, do not merge. This is way too risky. Just focus on realizing the synergies in Nevada. Um, you know, the two of them, 
two guys that really never got along were forced to the table and forced to bargain on doing a deal in Nevada. And then our deal got got to go through on the Gold Corp merger. That is fascinating. And I'm sure there's no ego at play whatsoever massive, here. Massive, massive, massive ego. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll tell you, those guys, I love them. They're, they're great personalities, but they'll be the first to tell you that they have big egos. <laughs> <laughs> they're, uh, they're self-aware enough. Level you have they're to. self-aware enough. Trust me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, when you're the you know among the biggest gold producers in the world, I, I don't blame them. Um, and 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 I guess they were afraid of being taken over because even if you're the boss man, yeah. you can you can be forced to sure. do something by your board, by your yeah. shareholders, whatever it may be. It's not ultimate. It's not all your. Yeah, decision. it's it's a fallacy that the CEO is 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 got. Um, absolute authority. They don't. I mean, what yeah. we have is, you know, and I've yeah. run a couple of organizations, larger organizations myself, is you have multiple constituencies. You know, you have your shareholders, you have your board, and you have your employees. And guess what? If they're not all singing from the same hymn book, your, your business is not going to survive. And uh, your job as a CEO is to constantly uh, advocate for what your, your strategic vision is with each of those constituents continuously. And if any one of them is singing off court at any point, um, then you're going to have a problem, and and so there That's there is no such thing as absolute authority. It's not an, a, a, a autocracy when you're running a company. It just isn't, and I'd say that's true for any business, not just money. So when after the acquisition, what happened? To you? I I I exited stage left. But look, when you when you um, merge companies of that size, you can only have one CEO, um, and Correct. so uh, Gary Gary's company was bigger. He paid a premium. Um, and so when you're getting paid a premium, you exit stage left and you go on to do something else. Um, and what I decided to do is I looked at uh, what was happening in the broader industry and I said, you know what? Reserves are declining. There's going to have to be reinvestment back in exploration and development. I'm going to position myself at that end of the spectrum. And so uh, first thing I did is I, I had um, some contacts back in China in the Chinese gold business, um, uh, a, a group called Zhao Jin who stay controlled, but they're actually publicly listed in Hong Kong. I have some friends there that operate on the corporate development side. And, and uh, we decided to collaborate on building a, an incubator fund um, to invest in gold juniors, because at the time, the juniors were significantly out of favor, but I foresaw the need to invest back in exploration. So we put together a fund initially of $25 million of Chinese money, uh, to invest in the gold junior space. And that was our timing was fortuitous because then the junior market started to take off um, in, in later in 2019 after we got that fund off, off the ground. Actually, it was 2020 before the juniors started to see some daylight again in the capital markets. And then um, uh, I launched a royalty company. Um, I, I started talking with a company called Gold Mining that had 12 development stage assets throughout the Americas on the gold side and said, why don't we write royalties in each of those assets and create a new royalty vehicle and spin it out? And we did that in March, raised $90 million US. And the reason I'm in that business is because um, in past cycles, when um, we've been in a cycle of development and exploration, the royalty companies are an extremely important part of the ecosystem. They provide access to capital for the early stage developers and explorers much more cost efficiently than those juniors can do themselves. And we effectively act as a bank for them. We give mm. them money to do their exploration development. We take a royalty back on the underlying assets. And so... And that's a, like, is that a percentage of production? Exactly, yeah. Something it can like be that? in physical form. Oh. You can take X percent of the production physically, or you can take yeah. just 2 to 3% of the revenue, for example. Right? So it's top line exposure entirely. That's 
out. Wow. So, you, so you've seen, and, and this is kind of full circle here, you saw the, the lack of development and you're like, hey, there's yeah. an opportunity here and I'm going to serve that market. That's, that's pretty slick. Well, I don't know if it's slick. It's just, you know, I, I've been in the business a long time and I can read the tea leaves just because I, I, I know I can recognize cycles because I've been through them. I've been through multiple cycles in my career and I know I've seen this movie yeah. before. I know how it's going to end. It's going to end with an overcompensation by the producers into mine development. They're going to have to overcompensate for the lack of investment they've undertaken in the last six or seven years. There's going to be this wall of capital coming into the explorers and developers in the next several years. And so I want to have some skin in that game. And the best way to do that is through wow. an investment fund focused on juniors and um, a royalty company focused on financing the up-and-coming developers that are having to build these new mines that the industry desperately needs. So after uh, after a $32 billion acquisition and the stress of that, you weren't just like, you know, I'm going to hit the golf course for a few I, I hate golf. years and, I hate and hang golf. out. Okay, <laughs> so there we go. Yeah. And, uh, and I love mining. And uh, it's fun. This is fun. <laughs> Financing mine development is, is a lot of fun. Uh, I've obviously undertaken mine construction umpteen times in my career. I, I understand yeah. how mine developers think. I understand the underlying risk of building those mines. I understand how creative you have to be in your financing to build mines. Um, I, I've financed many, many mines in my career. I understand how difficult it is to build and to finance mines, and I'm just there to, to facilitate that. I bring a lot of experience in that, and so does my board. Um, collectively, my board and management has 250 years of mine building and operating experience. I, I deliberately populated my board and management with former operators, not fi financiers, people that have actually operated and built mines, because that gives us yeah. uh, two things. It gives us a clear-eyed view of the underlying risks of things we're investing in, so we can do due diligence more effectively than others. But also, it gives me a very deep Rolodex to draw upon to get at new royalty opportunities. Each of our, each of the guys on my board and management bring a deep Rolodex, and I'm going to continually leverage that to continue to build my business. I'm sure you've never had a finance guy telling you what to do <laughs> in, the, in the mining space. Well, huh? you know what? They, they, they all, they all, you know, and and I have to tell you, there's a lot of in investors out there who think they know how to run your business, but none of them have built anything yeah. other than a spreadsheet in their careers. And so I, I. I I don't have a lot of time for that. I, I have a lot of time for people that actually built and operated mines. And that's why I've tried to surround myself with people that have done that. That's pretty cool. Um, lastly, and, and we've been on for a while. I could talk to you all day about this, honestly, but I'll let you get back to Father's <laughs> Day. Um, can we briefly talk about hiring and autonomy? Because that's a hot topic. And I know we've talked a lot about other, other hot topics, but autonomy is kind of a big underlying discussion right now, especially in the workforce of mines. And it's like, hey, what's what's going to go on here? What's the future of mining look like? There's all these trucks that are robots that are just driving themselves around. What do you see as far as the future of autonomy, workforce, everything like that is concerned? Well, well it's, it's, um, it's inevitable that labor intensity will go down at the mine site. And, and it has been going down. This is not a new dynamic. Um, you know, the number yeah. of people at a mine site has gone down dramatically over the last couple of centuries. It, you know, it's, it's become a lot more autonomous. Um, we were actually rolling out tele-remote equipment at our mine sites um, when I was running Gold Corp. Um, and what that meant is mm -hmm. people were actually operating their equipment from 
um, city centers, you know, and, and uh, you know, instead of going to house themselves at camps at the mine site and having to fly in and fly out, we're actually setting up uh, through the use of fiber optic cable, the ability to actually run the equipment from where they lived. Um, <laughs> it was, and that was pre-pandemic, you know, so people could literally live, yeah. you know, sit in their, in their study at their house or in the basement of their house and run mobile equipment. Um, that, that, that technology exists. And the beauty of it is it drives down your travel costs and has housing costs and improves safety performance at the mine site and improves productivity because you don't have downtime in your equipment because quite often you'll have several mm-hmm. hours of downtime per day as you're going through shift changeovers. Well, you don't have shift changeovers if the equipment's being operated from surface four or 500 kilometers away. Right. So the efficiencies yeah. are immense yeah. and, and inevitably the internet of things is going to drive a lot of efficiency um, through digital initiatives at the mine sites. That's it's happening in society generally, and there's no reason it shouldn't happen in the mining industry. And that's interesting. You say it's been hap- It's nothing new because I, yeah, I would, it's like, it's like when Caterpillar came out with a bigger yeah. truck, like a 400 ton ultra class truck. You're just replacing smaller trucks with a yes. big one now. So now you just need one operator as yes. opposed to two. And so it's, it's been happening. And it, yeah. But, but it means, Again, yeah, it means the nature of labor is, is changing in the mindset. It's become much more sophisticated. Yeah. yeah. Um, you're talking about coders as opposed to truck drivers. Right. Yeah. And so it, you know, has, has, has the uh, advent of technology in the economy generally driven down employment levels? No, it's changed the nature of employment. It's not going to be any different for the mining industry. Um, you know, it, mm-hmm. do we have an unemployment issue in North America? Absolutely not. And we're the most advanced economy in the world and the most digitized economy in the world. But people aren't starving for jobs. Your unemployment levels are exceedingly low. Yeah. But uh, employment at a mine in Canada is probably a lot different than employment at a mine in Peru. Well, no, I would say actually Peru is one of the more sophisticated mining jurisdictions in the world. And, the, and any of the digital initiatives we're undertaking in North America, believe me, they're undertaking in Peru. Um, and and that, that's wow. actually Chile as well. I mean, these are um, you know, natural resource-driven economies um, and, and uh, have very, very sophisticated mm. schools, um, universities and whatnot that churn out very, very sophisticated people. Um, so I, I would take a Peruvian, a Mexican, and Chilean and put them into a Canadian mine any time. Uh, those those guys are all yeah. super top notch. The schools are top notch uh, because those are naturally natural uh, resource uh, driven economies. And that's an interesting note because that's where it, Canada, sure, U.S., sure, but we're also driven by a lot of other yeah. stuff than just natural resources. And a lot of countries are just driven by natural resources in yeah. the United States, yeah. like mining. Yeah. Huh. Well, this was. Um, I've done a lot of learning, so I appreciate all of your time today. Yeah, my pleasure. How do they? So, how do they find you these days? Where do, where do people uh, go? Oh, sure. It, uh, what's the so company? Gold Royalty Corp, um, and it's goldroyalty.com, yeah. um, or and it's G R O Y N Y S E G R I. So, so okay. So it's it's yeah, listed yeah, on we, the news. We IPO in March, and uh, we raised ninety wow. million dollars US in our IPO. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So if I want. So I can invest in you guys as far as a piece of a yeah. royalty company. 
Absolutely. See, I'm connecting all the dots here. I'm pretty. I'm pretty quick. Aren't no, I? Uh, I, maybe I should have introduced that from the outset. You know, so uh, no, but, it, but yeah, no, that's yeah. that's the vehicle we're we're um, that I'm focused on day to day right now. I'm chairman and CEO of that, and uh, and I still am running this precious metal investment fund, Marshall Precious Metals. But that's essentially a private equity fund out of out of Hong Kong, um, and I have a CIO there that runs it day to day. Um, but but my day gotcha. job is the real gold royalty corp, and uh, what's amazing to me is that, that name was not protected. <laughs> gold royalty corp. It's kind of like owning the Kleenex brand of the royalty business. <laughs> yeah, it's simple. It's it's. I, I'll remember yeah, exactly. it. Yeah. No, that's great. All right, David. Well, I I again I, I really appreciate your time today. Thanks for sitting down with us and talking about gold and mining. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Dirt Talk is hosted by Aaron Witt and produced by me, Alex Horton. If you have questions, comments, or concerns, please email at dirttalk at buildwit.com and stay dirty. Stay dirty.